0: Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to open them up to Ephesians chapter one, verses three through six. So, Ephesians chapter one, verses three through six. Now, uh, after after last week, there were a number of points that uh, I just didn't have time to expand or to just uh, do justice to, and I wanted to take some time to do that starting this morning in a, in a short series on the electing sovereignty of God. And, uh, and of course, that means we have to start with God. And so this morning we will be focused primarily on Him. We're going to anchor ourselves in Ephesians 1, 3-6, but that will come in the latter half of the message this morning. We're going to start by looking at an aspect of God called the eternality of God or the timelessness of God. It's, it's one of those, uh, what's called in theology an incommunicable attribute. And you say, well, what in the world does that mean? It means it can't communicate well to us. Like, right? God is love is a communicable attribute. We know what it means to love. We love. There's a point of contact between us and God when He created us with this. Attribute that can easily be communicated between us, but an incommunicable attribute is something that belongs to God alone. Now, we'll see this as we look at the eternality of God. You will say to yourself, there is nothing in creation that is like this aspect of God. Now, uh, before we read those verses, there is one thing I said last week that I wanted to clear up any confusion about. Uh, I don't want to be misunderstood. And it was when I called open theism a heresy. I stand by that. It is absolutely true. However, open theism is not the same thing as Arminianism, and I didn't want anyone to confuse the two. Open theism, as the name implies, is a doctrine about God that claims He does not know the future, does not know what will happen, and He is only ever always acting in response To the radical free choices of his creation. He doesn't even know what nature will bring. Natural disasters are at random and they occur outside of his control and they have nothing, he has nothing to do with them when they happen. He only comes and acts in response like a, like a cleanup crew. And so that's a doctrine about God, open theism, and it's absolutely heretical. It goes against everything scripture teaches about God. It goes against everything Uh, uh, that all orthodox forms of Christianity and creeds believe, but Arminianism is not the same thing. That is a doctrine about salvation or soteriology, and it's not heresy. It's also not the position held by Christ Community Church, but believing in that doctrine by no means excludes someone from Christian fellowship. And of course, I know listening here uh, this morning are, are an assortment of opinions on the matter of election and the sovereignty of God. Some have have never really even heard it before and are hearing it explained for the first time. Others are wrestling with it and they're attempting it to reconcile to reconcile it with a, a conflict of beliefs. Maybe they've had they grew up believing it, but uh, now they're not so sure and they're wrestling through the implications of that. And others still after studying the Scriptures, have come to and are convicted of their Arminian conclusions and nothing will ever make them change their minds. And that's all right. All I ask is that through these next few sermons, you'd be willing to re-examine these passages and these doctrines to make sure that your convictions is based in church history, is based in theology, and most importantly by far, that they are founded in Scripture. So, uh, the temptation is just to tune out. Oh, this is, this is the sermon that I've been waiting to come that I, I don't really. Don't, don't just tune out, but reckon with it. Go through the scriptures and ask yourself, answer questions. Is this what the Bible says? So, that in mind, let's turn now to Ephesians 1 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for condescending, Lord, to lisp to us. Lord, it is not like a father speaking to children. It is like a, it is like a, a human being speaking to ants. Lord, but You condescend to speak in our language. To speak to us, to communicate with us, all that we need to know from your word, everything you want us to know about what it means to be human, about who you are as God, about how to live in this world and to bring honor and glory to your name. God, you've given it in your word, and I pray that you would write its eternal truths on our heart this morning. Help us, God, to hear your word with gladness and rejoice. And I pray, Father, that You would help me to preach. Lord, it is, it is always a difficult thing. Because our hearts are dull. Because You are so glorious. Lord, words can barely convey the truth of Your Word, Lord. All all human effort falls short. And so I pray, Lord, that there would be more than just human effort at work in this place this morning in myself and in our ears and in our hearts, Lord, but that Your Holy Spirit would help us to understand You are the great Teacher and write these truths, Lord, into our souls that they become for us a great filter, Lord, through which we view the world around us. They would understand what it means, Lord, that you are and there is no other. It's in Jesus' name we pray. It's you we seek. Help us this morning, Almighty God. Amen. Well, when I was younger, I would frequently hear quoted the words of Psalm 90, verse 4. With God, it quoted like this, with God, a thousand years is like a day. And I would usually hear that quoted explaining, hear it quoted to mean that after 1,000 years had gone by here on earth, it was only a day in God's sight. Often it was given in the context of the second coming. God said He would come back soon, and for Him, it would be. Only a only a few days have passed since his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension. And uh, that was the furthest extent of how I understood God's relationship with time. For him, super slow motion, and yet it passed at a rapid rate for us. Well, you can imagine how surprised I was when I discovered that the point the psalmist was making was not what I had always thought at all. The point is not that for every thousand years that go by here on earth, a day goes by in heaven. It's actually far more profound than that. And in Second Peter, we read something closer to the point. In Second Peter, it says that with the Lord, a day is as one thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. And I read that and my question was, well, come now, Peter, which is it? Is a day like a thousand years? Or is a thousand years is it like a day? Well, it's neither because that's not the point being made. The point being made is that this passage, in this passage, is not about how human time relates to divine time like dog years to human years. No, the, the point of this passage is that God is. The Lord God Almighty exists outside of time one of the most mystifying aspects of His divine nature. God is not bound to time like we are. You know, We move through it at at a linear rate. One direction. Time affects us and time changes us. Everybody in this room, you had a beginning in the past. You will have an end in the future. In fact, when you leave here this morning, you will not even be the same person who walked through the doors an hour before because at the very least, you're going to be an hour older. And tomorrow you'll be different still. And you don't know what tomorrow will bring. It could be good, it could be bad, but time will reveal that to you. Time will tell. But did you know that none of that applies to God? None of it. He is utterly unaffected by time. And where we stand inside of it, God stands outside. It's it's hard to grasp. So let me give you an example. How many of you have ever heard of the Bayou Tapestry? Yeah, it's a famous tapestry. It's a woven textile like a runner. It's over 200 feet long, and along those 200 feet of fabric are various scenes. It's just miles of needlework and embroidery, but it's not primarily decorative. The tapestry is actually one of the most important archaeological pieces of English history. And the reason why it's so important is because it's a record. It actually chronicles in 58 scenes, captioned in Latin, the Norman conquest of England on the events surrounding it. It ends with the famous Battle of Hastings, where William the Conqueror defeated Harold II, the King of England. And you can still find this tapestry in a museum in Normandy. It's stretched out the entire 224 feet along a long hallway. And what amazes me about this tapestry is not so much the history of it, as important as that is, but when you see it, you are coming as close to standing outside of time as a human being can. Because you can stand back and in one second, you can survey two entire years of human history. It's all right there. It's before your eyes. And you can look at the beginning, but you're not bound there. You can also look and see the middle and then the end. And even though it took two years to play out, you can see the whole thing in five minutes. Or you can start at the end and go to the beginning and then look at the middle. Or you can start in the middle and go which either direction you want. Now, for the characters and the kings in this tapestry, they are bound. They are working through in in chronology. They're telling a record. They're changing. Poor King Harold in the middle of the story. He's just returned from defeating the Vikings. By the end, he's dead. But you can see it all in a single instant. Time lies before you from the beginning to the end all at once. And in a way, this is how God sees the history of the world. He stands outside of time, and though we perceive it day by day and year by year and century by century, God looks on and sees it as once, all at once, a continual tapestry of time. This is what Peter means when he says... A day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. God stands outside of history. But it's not just that God's relationship with time is like that tapestry. Creation itself was like that. And when you think of creation, when you think of God creating, usually you think of Genesis chapter 1 and the creation of the material world. And what I mean is, you think of God creating all the things that you can see and you can touch and you can perceive. Everything made out of matter. The plants, the mountains, the seas, the animals, people. That is what God has made. And it's true. God did make all of those things. But it doesn't go far enough. Because God's work in creation is far more comprehensive than that. Colossians 1.16 It says, "...for by Him..." All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Quite a few years ago, a book was written by a well known physicist, and the title of that book was A Universe from Nothing subtitle, Why There is Something Rather Than Nothing. And the book sought to answer from an atheistic position the age-old question of why is there something rather than nothing? Why does the universe exist? And it went on with elaborate explanations of, of quantum physics and, and quarks and the properties of subatomic particles. But, but then when you get to chapter 9 of the book, you have a chapter that really undermines the whole book. Because the title of that chapter is Nothing is Something. And that chapter goes on to explain how the laws of physics demand or necessitate the spontaneous generation of matter. He says, because there are certain laws in place Molecules and atoms will necessarily exist. But listen, you don't need to go into the details of, uh, to understand any of this to see how it undermines the rest of the author's message. You just need to answer one simple question. Are the laws of physics something? Or are they nothing? Well, the obvious answer is that they are something. They exist. And the fundamental flaw in that book when the author uses the word nothing, he isn't actually referring to nothing. He's referring to the material world, the physical world, molecules and atoms, you know, the things you can see and things you can touch and things you can measure. But things like the laws of physics are not included. There's no explanation at all for how these laws came from nothing. And often we, when we think of creation, we can make the same mistake. We think God created the material, physical world, and having created it, you know, he he let it go and it unwound almost a, a deistic view. You know, God is the great watchmaker and he winds it up and lets it go, but then unlike the deist, we do believe that he intervenes and comes in at various points to keep everything on course. But as far as creation goes, God created rocks and trees and stars and seas and everything that fills them. But that's not what Colossians says. He didn't just create the material world. He created all things. Now just think for a moment. What would fit into that category of all things? Laws of physics, like gravity, thermodynamics and the rest. Every spiritual reality would fit into that category. All things. We're told in Colossians, things visible, everything you can see, and things invisible, everything you cannot see. And it's not limited only to the spiritual realm. It's everything unseen. Ideas that pass through the minds of men in one sense are created by God. We're told whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, how many of those existed when God created the world? Not one. And yet, we are told God created them all. And they were created through Him and for Him. You see that. Hopefully it's stretching your mind a little bit. Colossians tells us that when God created, He created everything, material and immaterial. Every nation that's ever existed, God created it. Every king on his throne exercising dominion, God created him. Every authority being exercised in the world today, God made it. He planned it and He brought it to pass at creation. Every action undertaken by any human being was in a sense created by God. I mean, just think about this verse. Does all things mean all things? Well, Colossians 1.16 is being very uh, emphatic. It does. And since it does, what can be excluded? Nothing. And so there is a sense where even every thought you have and word you speak, are they things? Yes, they are. And they were created through Him and for Him. That's what I mean when I say God created this world like that tapestry. He doesn't go scene by scene by scene. He spoke all of history into being at creation and unrolled it. All history from start to finish. And when God created, He created a beginning, a middle, and an end all at once. The entire timeline of history laid open before Him. This is why He is called the beginning and the end and the Alpha and Omega. He's not bound by time like His creation is. He created all of our history from the rise and the fall of kingdoms and nations and powers down to the smallest detail like a sparrow falling to the ground or the number of hairs on your head. And everything in between, including the direction and details of all the life of every individual human being who would exist, were created through Him and for Him. I know when you're thinking, you're thinking, well, what about this? And what about that? And what about this? And what about that? Maybe we'll get to those next week. But I just want to point out that this is not as hard to grasp as you might think. You can imagine an author of a book sitting down and and writing out a detailed timeline of the course of the novel that they have planned and writing out until they have everything written down, the the arc of the story, the arc of the characters, the backstories, the problems that they'll face, solutions to these problems, all of it thought out in advance. Sometimes it's even placed in a chart. And certainly when it makes it into the book, it's all compiled in this thoughtful, orderly way. The book has an introduction. It has a middle. It has a, a climax. And all of the thoughts and words and actions of the protagonist have been predetermined in advance by the author. And yet, when you read the book and you're invested in the life of one of the characters, are you thinking, well, I wonder what the author has planned for this character next? Not if you're invested in the book. You're you're wondering what the character is going to do what the character is going to do because the character takes on a life of his or her own. Even though it's all been planned from the start to the finish, it sure doesn't seem that way when you're reading through the book. And so let me ask a question. If it is possible for a human author to do this to ordain every course of action and every word and every thought and yet do it in such a way that the character in their book appears authentic and genuine and as a free moral agent operating on his own initiative. If a human author can do this, then couldn't God do the same? It is not possible, is it not possible, that God could do something similar, only better, I mean, is our God such a God that He could ordain at creation all things come to pass and yet at the same time not coerce, force, or compel His creatures to carry out that will? Is He able to detail our lives before we are born like an author, yet while at the same time we are still creatures as our responsible moral agents who make of our own choosing hundreds of decisions every day? Is it possible to conceive of a being able to do this? Decree everything that takes place down to your steps, and yet at the same time, you actually decide to take those steps while never once having the slightest inclination that you are merely a puppet with God pulling the strings. And I don't mean are you able to understand how this is possible. I mean, is a being like this conceivable? Can you imagine a being that spectacular? A being that powerful and majestic in his wisdom, in his in his being, in his sovereignty, that he could accomplish what an author does only only not in fiction but in reality. It is possible to conceive of a being that transcendent, with that much sovereign control, isn't it? And if such a being can be conceived of, why not God? This is how He is presented in Scriptures. And just because we cannot understand it doesn't mean it isn't true. And this is Almighty God we're speaking about. Unaffected by time. Never had a beginning. Never has an end. Never changes. He always and simply is. I mean, this is the great I Am. When Moses comes to Him, and you remember, He says, what is your name? And God answers, I am who I am. Of course there are things about this God we are not going to be able to understand. I mean, the the knowledge of God, things like this, brings us to the very edge of human ability to reason and understand and comprehend. And it's like being brought right to the edge of the universe. And you look out, and there's so much more out there. And it takes your breath away. And maybe you can look out into the distance and you can can maybe make out a few things and you can tell that whatever they are, they're incredible. But no matter how hard you strain your eyes, the details escape you. And there are certain truths in Scripture and doctrines about God that you can make out in the eye of your mind, but strain as you will, the details escape This is what H.P. Lovecraft tried to capture in his genre of horror called cosmic horror, transcendent horror, a fear of the unknown, of being so unlike us or so unlike anything we're accustomed to that the only emotion it can conjure up when we hear about them is dread, a fear of the transcendent, a fear of the holy, of the separate, of the unique. And that doesn't mean that the being is necessarily evil. I mean, in Lovecraft's novels, they tend to be, but it doesn't have to be. There's just some aspect of this being that is totally unsearchable. And if you're never made to tremble considering the awesome and overwhelming character of God, and if you think you have everything regarding His majesty and His being figured out, you probably haven't spent as much time with Him as you ought. And I'm speaking to all of us. I mean, this is God we're talking about. And it should come as no surprise that there are hidden things about Him that we can, yes, conceive of, but the thought is so beyond our comprehension we will never understand it. It should not come as a surprise that there are aspects of the being of God that push beyond the boundaries of our comprehension. Why does this matter? How does this connect with Ephesians chapter 1? Well, when we approach Ephesians chapter 1, we are approaching God in His transcendence. And if you don't understand at least that God is transcendent, that He is in some way unlike everything and everyone you know, that His thoughts are higher than yours and His ways are higher than your ways, He's outside of and above what He has made you're going to run into a lot of confusion and a lot of how can it be in this passage of Scripture. So Ephesians 1, 3-6. And let me read it again in light of this revelation of God's glory in and over His creation. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. When you read this in light of the God who stands outside of time... The complexity of Ephesians chapter 1 just don't seem to be so complex anymore. When you understand how God created all things, how he stands outside of time and how he ordains the beginning and the middle and the end, the passages are so hard anymore. It's, it puts a foundation under it. It's flat and it's wide. And it's, it's, it's like trying to build on something. If you try and build on mud, you, you stack a brick, stack another, stack. maybe when you get to the second row, they start to sink and fall over. But this knowledge of God puts a flat, wide base under this passage so that when you start to build and put one verse and one word and one phrase and begin to pile them up and lay them out, they fit and they hold up and they don't fall over. And not only is it not confusing, it begins to make sense. Because if God created all things, I mean, really all things, not just matter, but all things and everything those two words entail, then He must have chosen me in Christ before the foundation of the world. He must have predestined me for adoption as Son if He created all things, including my adoption. That's a thing. It couldn't have happened any other way. And in this passage, you have a beginning and a middle and then an end, big, broad picture of God's plan of redemption for His saints, His holy ones. And it starts before creation. Before the pillars of the earth are laid. God had in mind to bless His people. And sometimes we argue here about exactly who the people are in mind and on what grounds are they chosen. And, and maybe we'll take those up next week and answer some of those objections, but that's not the goal this morning. We see here that God did have a plan in eternity past. And that plan was to bless a people with every spiritual blessing and to do it in Christ. That's how Paul begins this passage. He blesses God who has blessed us. That's what the whole book of Ephesians is about. Our blessing God because God has blessed us And the very first and source of all of that blessing is being chosen in Christ. That's how the language works. That's what it shows us. God has blessed us even as He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So get the picture being put out here. You. You existed in the mind of God before you were ever born or ever had a thought. You existed in the mind of God before even the material to make your body had been spoken into existence. And again, this is just a, a testament to the incredible being of God that He is able to hold in His mind not just the names of, of tens of billions of individuals, but also in His mind, catalog their entire lives. And you were one of them. And for reasons that belong only to God, He chose you to be holy and blameless before Him, and He did it by placing you in Christ. So what does that mean? Why do I need to be placed in Christ? If you look at verse 7, you'll see why. In Him. So in Christ. This is why being in Christ so crucial. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So in verse four, we are chosen in him to be blessed and holy. And then verse seven tells us what it means to be in him. So what does chosen in him mean? Chosen to have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our sins. You wonder, well, why does God choose who he chooses? Look, it's before creation. It's before any human being's ever existed. It's before the fall. I don't know why He chooses who He does. I just know that He does. It's like with Israel in Deuteronomy. Maybe you remember they come to God and they ask, Oh God, why have You chosen us? Why have You set Your love on us? And He answers and tells them, Well, the one thing You can be sure of is it's not because of You. I have loved You because I have loved You. Deuteronomy 7.7 7 and Deuteronomy 9.5 and the verses around them. And yet we understand that it's not arbitrary nor is it bias. Right, God didn't select at random with no consideration for what He's doing like drawing names out of a hat. But He isn't examining and scrutinizing the lives of people either to choose based on something in them. God for reasons that are entirely His own and not drawn out of Him by us determined to place some in Christ. On what grounds? Verse 5, according to the purpose or the good pleasure of His will. So don't go looking for reasons in yourself. That's a dangerous game. It's a game you always lose. When people begin to look for reasons in themselves, either they vastly exaggerate their own righteousness and think that God chose you because of, of how wonderful you were or would become or of some right decision you would make, or you will discover that there is no reason whatsoever. And realizing that, you will become despondent and spiritually depressed. It's like a door that says, God only. And if you look through it or you spend all your time trying to think about what's on the other side, or you're, why did God elect me? It will not go well for your soul. It's like the ark in Indiana Jones. When they look inside of it, it does not go well for them. Or 1 Samuel 6, the men of Beth Shemesh look inside the ark and 70 men in that city of Levites are killed. No, Deuteronomy twenty nine, twenty nine. there are secret things that belong to the Lord. And so don't look for the basis of your election in yourself and don't speculate as to why you were. Look to God in praise and thanksgiving and realize He had a good purpose in doing it. He did it according to His pleasure and His will. In verse 11, His eternal counsel. Because the last thing the doctrine of election is designed to do is make you think about you. That's why I said last week, this is a doctrine that is given to humble us. It exists to silence any boast that we could make and turn our attention to the One who blesses us. And how does He bless us? By placing us in Christ before the foundation of the world and by bringing those predetermined plans to pass. That's the middle of this redemptive tapestry. This is what you experience today. You experience God's plan of salvation in your life as time advances. Right? You, you come or have come to the appointed time when you believed. But God doesn't see it that way. He sees it all at once. This is why he can say you were in Christ before the foundation of the world, and yet there was a point in time when you walked according to the flesh. But God, outside of time, reached into His tapestry, reached into history, and caused you at the appointed hour to be born again. He opened your eyes. He opened your heart to believe. And in that instant, you became a Christian. You became what God had predestined in eternity past for you to be. There was grace and forgiveness and redemption planned for you in Christ from before the ages Began. 2 Timothy 1 9. This is all over the Bible. 2 Timothy 1 9. God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So God calls in time to you, and when He calls you, He fulfills His plan, His purpose and grace that He gave to you when? Before the ages began. So when was God gracious to you? What does Scripture say? When does it say that God showed you, and I mean you as an individual, when did He set His grace upon you? before the ages began. The answer is not at the cross. And the answer is not when you believed. Those are the outcome and the expression of the grace that God has purposed for you. They're the accomplishment of the grace that God has purposed for you. But He set and gave it to you, set His grace upon you, gave His grace to you in Christ before the ages began. Now let me make a point here of what this means for your forgiveness. It means that God knew about every single one of your sins before you ever committed a single one of them. And He knows about all the sins you will commit in the future. He's outside of time, remember? He sees them all. Think about this. When Christ died, how many of your sins were still in the future? Nobody in this room alive 2,000 years ago. All of them were in the future. And yet God knew every one of them. And He imputed them to Christ so that Christ's righteousness would be imputed to you. He paid them all. All for the sins of, of saints past, for the sins of all of those who were alive in Christ in that day, for all the sins that would come in the future in your life presently all the sins of your past all the sins of this morning and all the sins you will yet commit were known by God and placed on Christ this ought to make it easier to come to him right because when you sin and you're ashamed you think how could I have ever done this how could those thoughts have ever crossed my mind God's not surprised In fact, every time you're shocked at what comes out of your mouth or goes on between your ears, you know that God still knew about those sins thousands of years in eternity past and He still set His love upon you. And He still predestined you for adoption and then sent Christ into this world to redeem you and purchase your forgiveness. Even sins you're unaware of, God knows. And God made atonement for them all. And so when you believe and call on Christ for salvation and come to Him in repentance and faith, that's what's happening. God is pouring out the grace He set upon you in ages past. Well, why does He do it? What's the, what's the goal? What's the purpose of all of this? What's the end? It's actually three times in Ephesians 1, 3-14. It is to the praise of His glory and grace. It's all for Him. That's why it was created. That's why you were saved. That's why you will be in heaven so that you will bless God for the blessing He's given you in Christ. You exist to glorify God as a trophy of His grace. Does that stretch your concept of God? Maybe you hear that and you think, well, God's just egotistical then. Created all of this for himself? Can't be. How does this square with righteousness? Listen, that's not a bad question. We know it would be wrong for a human being to do this, for a man to seek out their own glory. Sometimes it's even used as an insult. You're just a glory seeker. So why is it wrong for us to do it, but not wrong for God to seek His own? Three reasons. And one, most fundamental, everything that God does is good. And if God chooses to create a universe to be a display case for His glory, who can say to Him, what have you done? I mean, think about it. What do you use to measure right and wrong? I remember I had a friend in Bible college. that he asked me that question one time. I think he was working on a paper and it came up and I was nearby. And so he put the question to me and I'd never thought about it once at all before. never thought about it before. What makes something good? And so I debated him flimsily about it for a little while before he answered, and I won't forget his answer. He said, no, all that is necessary for something to be good is God has done it. Everything God does is good by virtue of it being done by Him. God is the perfectly good being. And that doesn't only mean He can only do good. It means He is the measure of what is good. And if God does it, it is good. Now, that may not be exactly what he said, but that's the point of what he said. And it's true. If God does something, whatever that something is... It is good because God has done it. You know, sometimes we sing, Whatever my God ordains is right. It's true and it's worth singing about and being reminded of. And so if God seeks his own glory, he is only doing what is right and what is good. I mean, what's the alternative? What else are you going to measure goodness and righteousness by? Our own standards or our own opinions? I mean, even, even our interpretation of scripture. The scriptures are good. Why are they good? I think that's what I said to him. Well, we measure what is good by the word of God. And he goes, How do you know the word of God is good? Uh, (laughs) It's because it comes from God. That's how we know it's good. If something comes from God, it's good. Nobody is going to hold God accountable or rebuke him for being a glory seeker. There are other reasons. Reasons why it's wrong for us to glorify ourselves and right for God to do it. The second one being you were created to give glory to God. I mean, that's why you and everything else exists. And when you seek glory for yourself, you are going against the very thing you were created to do. It's like a police officer who is corrupt and instead of using his authority for the purpose it was given to him to uphold the law, he uses that authority to extort and blackmail and threaten people to get what he wants. And so you see, there's there's nothing inherently wrong in the authority He has, but when He uses it in a wrong way, in a misguided, inappropriate way, it's wrong. It's a breach of His purpose. Well, that's what we do when we seek glory for ourselves. And thirdly, the third difference is because the best and kindest thing God can do for us is to glorify Himself. Maybe this is a bit of an unfortunate example, but consider... When a professional actor goes and visits kids in the hospital, what's he doing? He or she is using what a claim that they have in order to bring joy to others. And in a way, they are glorifying themselves before the people in the hospital, especially if they go in a, in a costume or something. But by doing it, they gain nothing. And the children who see it will probably remember it for the rest of their lives. Well, when God seeks His own glory, it's a little bit like that. It's the best possible thing He can do for us to fulfill our joy. He's giving Himself to us, and since we were made for Him, it is our greatest joy. There are people in your life who you love, aren't there? And you enjoy seeing them succeed, and you enjoy seeing them praised, and you enjoy seeing them thought well of, and you cheer at their accomplishments. When they succeed, you are happy. Well, when God glorifies Himself, there is no greater joy that He can give to us. Or another example, how many children, even though they have been given all kinds of gifts, but what they really want, what really fills them is, with joy is time with their parents, with their dad. And then, you've all seen this, When the dad does something to impress them, what do they do? That's my dad, and they're happy as can be. God exalts Himself to make us as happy as we can be. And He does it through His purpose and election so that we would praise Him for the glory of His grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Ephesians 2, 5-9, one last verse. It says, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with Him, and He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now you may think I want to point to verse 8. I don't. As important as it is. Look at verse 7. He made us alive in Christ so that... right? You want to know the reason? This is as close as we get to the why in the mind of God. So that in the coming ages, in all of the eternity that will come, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ. This is the blessing. This is the blessing you see here in this passage. You know, all of the blessings you have today, I mean, think about them. Freedom from sin. Redemption from the fall. You have been adopted as sons. You have been reconciled to God. All of it, sins atoned for, completely forgiven. Have you ever stopped to think that that is just the beginning? And it will take everlasting, eternal, infinite number of ages for the riches and the grace and the kindness of God to be poured out. And after a trillion years, They will show no sign of slowing down, of running low, or growing dull. They are literally immeasurable, never coming to an end. God ordained it for you, for those who trust in Christ. And He did it before the foundation of the world, and He brought it to pass in time when He made you alive in Christ. And you will go on to enjoy Him and His grace and His kindness for all eternity. Never-ending, infinite ages to come. And all of it to the praise of His glorious grace. We have a lot to praise Him for. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Our hearts grow so dull, so easy. And Lord, You put before us mountains of precious promises that go up through the clouds. And we can walk among them without our hearts being stirred at all. Lord, I pray that You would forgive us for coldness. I pray, Lord, that Your grace would soften our hard hearts and warm them, Lord, that we would marvel at You that we would really and truly be amazed at grace and astonished and awestruck by a glimpse of You. Lord, Moses, Moses just saw a glimpse of Your back and his face shone brighter than the sun. I pray, Lord, that we would get a glimpse of Your glory through Your Word, through this preaching, I pray, Lord, that we would see in some small, pitiful way Your majesty. Lord, we would not be who we are. It would change us tremendously. And we will be changed to the degree that we know You And help us, Lord, as we go out this morning not to think what a wonderful thing we've learned, though it is wonderful, but help us to live in light of Your glorious grace, of Your predestinating power, of Your grace in ages past, of the width and breadth of Your hand that holds all things. Help us to believe that the nations are a drop in a bucket compared to You. That You really do raise up nations and pull them down. That the world is open before You like a scroll God. You are God. It's in your name we pray. Amen.